Hello and welcome to the Pixel Classroom Podcast, the podcast about passion, innovation, X-Factor, enthusiasm, and leadership in education. I'm your host, Ryan Reed, business and technology teacher. You can listen to the Pixel Classroom Podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and now we are on Stitcher, CastBox, and Overcast. You can even copy the RSS feed right to your computer for easy listenings. If you would like what you hear, please think of subscribing and please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. So everyone, welcome to episode 11 for January 2020. I hope everybody's doing great because I am very excited who we have on the Pixel uh, Classroom podcast today. My guest today serves as the Director of Innovation for Future Ready Schools. He is a keynote speaker, writer of books such as Learning, uh, Leading Professional Learning and Personal and Authentic Designing Learning Experience that impact a lifetime that doesn't even begin to list the amazing accomplishment this educator has completed. I would like and welcome to the Pixel Podcast, Thomas C. Murray. Hi, Tom, and welcome. Hey, 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 it's awesome to be with you, my friend. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm Look forward to our conversation. Oh, I am too. This is great. So why don't you give us a little background about your your career in education here, Tom? Sure. So I spent the uh, the first part of my career up until a couple of years ago um, in a K-12 district in Pennsylvania. And, you know, on one hand, I, uh, I was never looking to leave. I loved what I did. And I don't think I've applied for a job in my last three or four jobs that I've done. And, you know, I've always loved where I was at. I always felt like I worked with amazing people. Um, you know, there's nothing better than working with kids in a classroom in a given day. And so I spent the very first part of my career teaching at the elementary level. No problem. Um, and as I was going, um, you know, teaching at that elementary level, I would I will tell you every year at the end of that year, I had tears streaming down my face, watching those kids leave, just having invested my entire life into them over the course of the year. And there was just nothing like that from a connection. And um, I then moved to middle school and where I, I taught business education, just like you. And so I had the opportunity to, to work with more students and, and teach at a different level, taught sixth, seventh and eighth grade um, to where a principal will count my, my principal at the time who was retiring a few years later, walked into my room one day and said, you know, Tom, I'm only going to be here for a few more years and you're the kind of person I'd love to see running this building, uh, you know, in the future. And uh, wow. it really meant a lot to me that he, he really went out of his way to do that. And needless to say, about a year and a half later, my assistant principal retired and he pulled me out of the classroom, gave me the opportunity and said, hey, it's, it's an opportunity. If you want it, you can always go back to your classroom. And, you know, I did some of those kind of lower level administrative things, starting with bus referrals and cafeteria duty and, <laughs> you know, those kinds of real fun things at a middle school. And Oh, um, yeah. Been, been, been on the cafeteria. <laughs> In fact, so that's, I was a same. Yeah. So I served at the middle school in an administrative role for a couple years and then went back to elementary um, where my passion really was. I was an elementary principal uh, for three years before going over to district office for my final three years in that district. Uh, I was part of superintendent's cabinet, um, technology director, CIO, but also oversaw many things at our high school. And so one of the things that I look back at the time on site that I really appreciate is I was able to work with K to 12 at all levels from the teaching and learning side, assessment side, all those different pieces, um, as well as something I'm passionate about related to your, your podcast here too, and that's the use of technology and using it well. And so currently I serve as a director of innovation for future ready schools. That's my day job. And as you mentioned, I get to um, also write some books and speak a lot. And and those kinds of things are, you know, I never actually sat back and said, I wanted to be an author. I never sat back and said, I wanted to, to keynote conferences. It's really never been a goal of mine. And it sounds kind of funny um, for somebody that's released a number of books and, and gets to speak <laughs> a lot of, over the course of the year. It's just um, opportunities seem to breed opportunities. And I try and take advantage of the ones when they, they present it. And um, at the end of the day, though, this, the work is still about loving and caring about kids, just like it was in that fourth grade classroom. And it's my job to 
to, to encourage, to inspire, to challenge, to motivate, to provide resources and tools for those that are still working on the ground level every day. There's no greater job in our country than working side by side with kids in a classroom. Uh, it's something I miss every day, but I'll say something that I feel like I can impact as I work with so many educators each year. Um, you know, I know educators are some of the, the most hardworking, talented, creative, incredible people on the planet. And so now it's an honor to support them at the national level. Wow, that that that's quite the career. And I, I love the fact that you say, you know, the opportunities came and you took it. Some people go that way or they say, well, you know, I never thought I'd do it, but yet here I am doing yeah. it. And it's, it's interesting to say that, you know, when I, when I was moving from being a teacher, I remember, um, you know, and I was, I loved being a teacher again, I wasn't necessarily looking to leave the opportunity in that regard came. And, and I remember one of, one of our union heads came and he was a good friend of mine. He closed the door and he said, Tom, you know, I really need to talk to you about like, you go over to that other side, you're giving up a lot of your rights as a union member. And, you know, and I was like, well, you know, my mindset was just, well, if I'm good at it, like, I, I'm not worried about that. And right. you know, there certainly has been in our, in our history time for that. And I'm not anti-union. I don't mean that at all when I say that, but it wasn't a fear of like, if I leave that, then like, you know, I'm gonna lose my job the next day. And, you know, you certainly give up a lot of those things. And, you know, unions have done a lot of great work, and it's not knocking that at all. It was just that that fear of don't leave because and then when I was at a district level administrator or a principal district level administrator, um, moving to be at a nonprofit in Washington, DC, it was like, what do you mean you're going to leave a school district? What do you mean you're going to give up your pension? What do you going to mean you're going to give up that stability? Like a nonprofit, they can let me go tomorrow and there's nothing I can do about it tomorrow, you know? And like, uh, but again, yep. going back to like, I will do my job the best that I can every day and create the conditions where people want me to be there. And if I'm not, and they, they choose to go in another direction, well, that's their obligation. And you know what? I'm okay with that. And so when we look at it, yes, it's a different mindset. It's something that I don't know I, I felt when I was a 22, 23, 24 year old teacher. Um, but now I'll just work to commit to work as hard as I can for as many people as I can so that people want me in their space, whether it's to speak, whether it's to work with their teachers or their administrators um, or what have you. So I love what I do. I'm passionate about what I do. And I also feel really blessed to have the opportunity to do what I do. And I, I have to say, it's you're doing it for all the right reasons. I did work in private and yep, when they let you go, you go. And I came where I am in my current district. And all of a sudden I was like, well, welcome to the union. I'm like, okay, so this helps me, right? I'm not sure. I've never really been part of the union. I've always believed in them. My, my aunt's a retired teacher. My mother-in-law was a teacher once upon a time too. So they belong to the unions and the pensions and everything. But it was very interesting where I was the opposite direction where I did work for those private and parochial. And when they let you go, it was kind of, you know, and I, I shook hands. I walked away. Some people looked at me like, why are you doing all this? I'm like, what? They gave me the opportunities. They gave me a place to call home. Why am I going to destroy and burn that bridge? And then, of course, I worked my way back over to where I am now back in the public school. And, you know, mine's working towards more curriculum. So that might change, too. I got I would have, you know, if I do change in the district at a future point, you know, I got to see, does that affect me or not? But I also believe where it's going. It's the reason why I wanted to do my doctorate, my dissertation. It wasn't just about security, but it's like, where is this pulling me? I mean, yours pulled you to all these different avenues, you know, director of innovation, you know, speaking, book writing and so forth. And I felt I've been pulled that way too. But, you know, I was the opposite where I got pulled back to the classroom when I wasn't really in it to begin with. So it's really yeah. interesting where you just go where you feel that's what it is. And, you know, some people question you like, why are you doing this? Yeah, no, and I'll say one thing about education, just I, I probably get, I, I work with so many people in a given year, you know, whether it's for a day multiple times or every day across the country. And the, the thing that I will share related to that is no matter where I go, no matter what level it is, at the classroom level, at the building level, district level, or even the state level, working with a lot of state departments, no matter where I go in education, there's amazingly people that work tirelessly for kids that just give so much to kids. And those are great people to be around. And that's part of why I feel blessed to do what I'm doing.
Oh yeah. People I work around here, they definitely do it for the kids first. I mean, we have our good days and bad days. It just goes with the territory, but yeah, I be, you know, we believe in what we're doing. So here's a good question. Director of innovation. What exactly is a director of innovation? I've seen the term. I've been a former director myself. I have friends that are known as the director of innovation and technology. So really what is the innovation come into a role such, such as this? And how do your passions actually, you know, are used in that role? So as the director of innovation for future schools, one of the things that's really unique for us, we, we don't sell a darn thing. And so we raise a few million dollars every year. People are, you know, when they first learn about it or they start getting involved, I always get the question of like, what's the catch? Like, this seems too good to be true. You know, why can we come to these events for free? Why are all the resources and professional learning you do for free? And so, you know, as the director of innovation of all that, my job is to spark curiosity. My job is to create awareness. My job is to provide resources and tools for those on the ground in classrooms and schools and leading schools every day. Um, but it also certainly gives a lot of um, ability to take different directions. I will tell you, you know, one of the things is we're not going to be the behemoth that takes years and years and years to change. When we see a need, we'll work and figure out what we need to do to either get the funding um, or whatever the case might be to make it work. And so we can kind of spin on a dime if we need to. Um, so we want to be agile. We want to be flexible. Sometimes people call me the, the chief evangelist for Future Ready. <laughs> um, I'm constantly out there always, you know, preaching it in that regard. But because I'm not selling something, because we're there just really to support districts and raising money to do the support. I'm, I'm okay being the chief evangelist in that regard. It's not an <laughs> official title, but you know, um, because we're, we're really there for the right reasons. We're there to support cultures. We're there to build leadership capacity. We're there to support um, teachers in different ways. You know, the flip side, we only have so much capacity. Like we can't be working oh, yes. outside every teacher in our nation because we can't raise enough money to do that. And no. so you know, we work a lot with um, district level leaders, school level leaders, whether it's superintendents, principals, um, instructional coaches, and those those to provide really ongoing professional learning opportunities through institutes and those kinds of things. So to answer your question, I don't know what it is you know, and I kind of <laughs> about it because I really have the flexibility and I'm given the flexibility to make it what I think is right for what's needed at that point in time. And we all know how things quickly evolve. It's a way to quickly evolve without being stuck with a title that was 25 years ago, but to be able to, to be more future forward and future focused in that regard in the work that we do. You know, and I think that's a great answer because I, I have, you know, like I said, I have friends who are director of innovation. Somebody just say, what's the innovation? Well, we do this, this, this. I said, that is innovative. And some people say, you know, I don't know why it's called the innovator. I know where the technology works. I know how we work it as a director and PD and all that. But sometimes some people don't know why it's called innovation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's always those buzzwords. I'll take a grand example with my car. I have a Traverse. It is known as an LG. We asked when we got it three years ago, we said, what do those letters mean? LZ, LX. And he said, you know what? They don't. They just mean you've got some extra bell and whistle they yeah. threw a letter on it and it's like do you want want the extra bell and whistle or not or you just want to traverse i said okay that makes sense yep, there you go and at the end of the day i will honestly tell you i don't care what my title is and you know i do yearly reviews for for my bosses and the president and ceo of where i work and every year it comes up and i i'll honestly say i don't care what the title is on my business card you know part of what eric Scheninger and i wrote on learning transformed um the last book that i had put out with with um ASCD was this idea of leaders by title versus leaders by action. And to me, I want to be the person that's far more about action. You know, it's a very traditional structure, traditional um, structure when we think about like titles and kind of who reports to who and those things. Right. 
I will tell you, I don't operate well in that environment. Um, you know, I certainly understand the, I answer to certain people and I'm responsible for things. That's completely fine. And I, I fully get that, but that's not what makes somebody effective. And you know, they, somebody can put CEO on my business card tomorrow and it's not going to change my passion or my energy or what I do for people. I don't really care what's there. And I know it sounds kind of funny to say that, but at the end of the day, it's not somebody's title that makes them effective. So it really shouldn't be any different for me. Um, you know, you could, you could call somebody a director of innovation. You could call somebody a superintendent. That's an amazing amazing, amazing person, incredible leader for kids, or I can think of superintendents, I wouldn't put my own children under their leadership. And I don't mean to right. be dis disrespectful when I say that. It's just not the title that makes them effective in their work. And so it's the same for me. So at the end of the day, I don't care what people call me. I just want to do the work to support school and district leaders. And I think that's a good point. Believe it or not, I had, we, had our, uh, we had our incoming freshmen and everything. And actually title-wise, it's like, well, I, you know, I am doctory, not mystery. But most of the kids, they said, what do we call you who have been with me these last couple of years or they're right now? And I said, you know what? It's up to you what you call me. You've been here longer. But it's like they'll get to the point to where they see it in the book and like, oh, the teacher is Dr. Ryan Reed. And then the kids will be, oh, we call him Dr. Ryan Reed. But some of these kids are like, oh, I knew when he was just Mr. Reed. So I just told them, like it's up to you what you want to call me it's like if you want to go formality then yes that's edd you know doctorate of education just like my superintendent you know philosophy of doctor you know and uh, congratulations on that new doctorate oh and thank you really hard and long and that's quite the feat so uh, what eight eight long years uh I, I i know i let my last podcast here before i went dark before my interview with you i was telling you about the journey and kind of going on it too and i think i'll save that for an upcoming podcast yeah. i don't want to waste your time or anything eight but... long years the best four-year program you did huh in eight long <laughs> technically years. it was supposed to be a five-year program but you know there's people they're still not done and i even got an email from the university to say oh you're reaching your maximum hours i said no problem yeah, <laughs> i've right, reached right. them so uh, shifting back into, you know, you definitely talk about passion and innovation. So one thing we talk about here in the Pixel Classroom podcast is X, X factor. So that's that one true gift someone brings to a classroom or position every day. What do you believe yours in? And, you know, how do you encourage your students or in this case staff to find their X factor to use? So for me, one, one area, I, I'd actually love to phrase it as something that I would hope people would say. Um, I think sometimes we can say, here's what I bring. And then the people you work with every day are looking at you being like, uh, are you talking about the same person that I'm talking about? Um, <laughs> for, me, for me, I would say it's empathy. To me, I really believe empathy is one of the keys to innovation. I think empathy is a key to connecting um, school culture from leadership to culture to classrooms. If I'm a teacher in a classroom, it's the empathy of uh, the students and what the stories they walk in with each day. If I'm a principal, it's the empathy of what my teachers have on their hearts and their plates and their minds and all they're asked to do. Um, and you could really go at any level there in that regard. And to me, um, empathy is super important. I think it's something that comes from my own life experience and whether they're just things I've experienced as a teacher uh, struggles in my own family that I've faced, those kinds of things. Um, I think empathy would be a factor that's just so vital in all of our work today. And it's, it's hopefully something that people would see in me. It's something that I would love for people to say about that, that the people that really know me and that work side by side with me each day. Wow. And I think that's perfect. One thing I always, every book I've read, every time I go to a professional account, we always talk about student empathy. And I think that's something some people don't really think of, or they don't understand the term. And then you get the people who understand empathy. Like you said, that's their X factor. And they just, you know, they bring it, they try to bring out other people. I remember reading one drop of kindness about a month ago to my son. And, you know, my wife was saying, so see his go telling our son, like, see, it's kindness. That's his X factor and everything. Cause my son heard it in class and he's like, what's an X factor. And I, he, and he, was going through my books he's like 
daddy, is this X factor? It's a comic book. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's, that's something different. Tyler, it's not the right X factor. You know, Ryan, I would say the other thing that goes hand in hand with that is humility. Mm. Um, it's, important, it's important for me just getting to speak. You know, there's times where I'll, I'll speak in front of five, six, 7,000 people in one shot. It'd be so easy to stand on a stage and have ego, have pride, have this mindset of like, just buy my book and I'll solve your problems. And, <laughs> you know, and like, to me, it's just the biggest turnoff. And so, you know, a number of years ago I committed, I will never stand on a stage and tell people how well I did something. I'll never stand on a stage and pat myself on the back. But what I'll do is I'll tell people how I screwed it up or where my mindset was off or what I learned because I find that people relate to the human side. And now being removed from the classroom or even from running a school or district, it'd be so easy for me to just kind of spout out these platitudes of like, well, just do this and just do that and completely forget how hard the work is every day, how complicated things are and those kinds of things. And so, you know, the, the humility side is something that I just personally value and it's something that I aspire to um, and just recognizing how hard people work every single day and not being that person that comes in, tells them that they're not doing it well enough, even though I've never been in their classroom and those kinds of things. The humility is key because I think it just it's we're in the people business and you have to be able to relate to people and people can relate to failure. People can relate to when their mindset was off. But the moment I start saying, well, you, you know, well, I did it this way and I did it that way. Everybody starts looking at it and think, well, you know, if I had a PTO like that, I could do that. If I had a superintendent like that, I could do that. If I had that budget or I was in a right. And you come up with every reason you can't. And so I know for me, it's a huge turnoff when I see the ego and the pride and the kind of me mindset of just look at me, look at me. And so, you know, to me, that empathy and humility really goes hand in hand. And it's just something that I really try and model. Um, I certainly fail at it often in that regard, as I'd say we all do. But I just think it really goes hand in hand, whether speaking or working side by side with teachers, superintendents, or whoever the group might be. Yeah. And I think it's a good point of humility. Cause I mean, the kid, my kids here too. I mean, I never pretend to these kids that I am super expert. Cause I'll have days where it's just nothing goes right. And I'll just look at them like, you know what? It's just not working. Like I just taught a class today. We were doing Photoshop. I've done it for a couple of years now. My mother's even told me how to use Photoshop. And here it was like, we were here, we we're here. This person had a question was here. And then finally I was just kind of like, you know what? We're finally to where we should be. So now play with it a little bit and I'll walk around and help you. But I was at the point to where I taught this, you know, 15 weeks ago. And that was so straightforward. People would look at me like, wow, he knows what he's doing in the classroom. And then they'd see me today and be like, is he okay? I don't think, I don't think he knows what he's doing. I think, you know, one of the things that I share with teachers often in this area around failing forward and those kinds of things as well is, you know, if your students view you as the teacher, as this perfect person that never makes mistakes, that knows it all, that they never witness, have to like change direction because something different worked well, like as lovingly as I can, they can't relate to you because kids don't know what that feels like. And if kids think it's this perfect person in front of them that always has all the answers, that's super intimidating and they can't relate. And so when we're that person and that teacher in that classroom and we make a mistake and we kind of laugh at ourselves or shift directions (laughs) and say, guys, I thought that was going to work well. It didn't work. I'm going to own that. I'm sorry about that. Just like when I'm a principal standing in front of my staff, when I mess something up and I stand in front of my staff and say, you know what, gang, like I made the wrong call there and I'm sorry. And I thought it was right, but we're going to shift directions. And I appreciate the feedback and it didn't go as planned. Well, guess what? Our teachers are going to gain respect because they see the vulnerability there. And I think that vulnerability is also a key to innovation. And when we take a look at that vulnerability piece, I think whether I'm a teacher with students, a principal with teachers, a superintendent with my admin team or my teachers, I think that vulnerability, that humility, and that empathy are just such keys to leadership, to culture, and then even to innovation as well.
Yeah, because I, I mean, it, it is. I mean, if, if I, one thing I always tell the thing is I feel like students now is they can't fail. They have to do it right or they have to have the answer right to them. And they don't understand, like, that's really not how learning is. It is about failure. Yeah, we do stamp grades or numbers on it. But at the same time, are you learning from that? Oh, like, I got a zero because I didn't turn anything in. So what does that teach you? Well, stay on top of it. I'll turn it in. I won't probably fail. I might not do the best, but at least it's not going to be like, oh, no, wow, I, I didn't turn it in. I didn't try. I said, yeah, you're learning from your mistakes. You're in good shape. I mean, like I said, our eighth grade coming, I, I talked to a couple of students. I said, what and the tours? They're looking at me like, why are you talking to us, Mr. E? I said, tell them you've been in my classroom. What's one advice they said? And they said, stay on top of you. You might think it's easy, but then all of a sudden out of nowhere, it'll pile on. But if you stay on top, it'll never feel like it's piled on. I said, nice answer. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so I, I, here's an analogy I can make is this. A number of years ago, I was leading a workshop, and in that workshop were three superintendents of the year for their state. Oh, so wow. So people that had been recognized as three of the best leaders in their state, and they were incredible, incredible superintendents. So if my mindset throughout this process is I'm here because I know it all or I'm here because I know it the most – um, yeah, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing anymore. And I will tell you that it's far from my mindset. And I'll often share that. Listen, I'm not here because I have all the answers. I'm not here because I've just got the easiest way to do something. Bringing at it from a stance of, sure, I bring experience from all levels of K-12. I get that. But at the same sense, it's understanding and amplifying, no matter where I am at what level I am, the human capacity. So going back to that workshop example, you know, recognizing if you're working with 100 teachers or I'm working with all, that was, you know, 100 superintendents in a room, it's leveraging the incredible capacity that's in the room. And so working nationally at this point, I think one of the biggest differences, it's a mindset shift for me. When I was doing a lot of professional learning in my district, I did a lot of after school workshops. I taught a lot on in-service days. Um, they were awesome. And I think a lot of my mindset and the opportunity was awesome. I don't mean my workshops were awesome. Like, right, right. But I think my mindset has shifted in there. I really looked at it as I was there to help just teach something. It was a lot more training stuff. You know, I'm a Google Docs 101. This is how you share a document. This is how you use <laughs> Twitter. And, you know, and there's certainly a place for that. And for me, that was a starting point. It was things like I've got passions in these areas. I have some basic skills in these areas and I can help you have develop some of those pieces. Where now I think it's much more of a, a collaborative mindset, amplifying great things that are happening problem solving, design thinking activities, those kinds of things to really leverage the capacity that's already in the room and recognizing from the get-go, like every day in every one of those classrooms, amazing things are already happening. So if my mindset is it's my way or the highway, or I'm going to come in with all your answers and I've never even been there, number one, shame on me. But number right. two, I would encourage people like run out of those workshops because it's just, it's demeaning, it's demoralizing. And it's just, it's, it's here's somebody with a sales pitch or here's somebody kind of with just their tagline. And for me, it's recognizing that people are working insanely hard. Hard. There's amazing things already happening. So how do you build capacity? How do you break down silos? How do you build leadership capacity and help people see things in, self, in themselves that they might not see when they look in the mirror to ultimately support our students at that next level? Recognizing that everybody has that kind of point A where they're starting and we're trying to move them to, to their point B and that's just unique for each person. So I think it's seeing opportunities, seeing possibilities and not seeing deficits. And so, you know, whether uh, I'm working with superintendents or principals or teachers 
managers or whoever the group might be, kind of that national mindset really needs to be build on the amazing things that are already happening, help them get to where they want to be, where the, what's right for their community, don't have that one right answer. Uh, do a lot of work with them ahead of time so you know as much about the place as possible and you're not going in there cold and then do everything that you can to support them moving forward with tools resources and those kinds of things to support the work but never forget where you came from and so that right. transition from classroom to building to district to national um, is again not something that I just aspired to do I, I got recruited from my district to go do the work nationally that I do it wasn't something I didn't apply I wasn't looking to go do that work but I think it's been a mindset shift for me and understanding you know there's things that when I look back at the district level, we were super proud of that we were doing really well. And then I started working nationally and I started to be like, wow, like that district, they blew us out of the water, you know? And so wow. it, what's really helped on that end is it's given me a, a massive perspective. You know, sometimes I'll hear, I'll see on things like Twitter, like, well, you shouldn't be, te you shouldn't be working with teachers if you're not currently in the classroom. Here's why that is so short-sighted. And I hear where that's coming from. I get it. Like if you've never been a teacher, a second grade teacher, you're telling te second grade teachers what to do. I fully understand that. I don't disagree wholly. Here's what I, the flip side is though. Being able to work nationally, being in like a hundred different schools in a given year, you get to see so much. So for instance, I had my lens in my community where I was. When I was a principal, I was a principal at Title I building. It was one of the needier buildings. Well, a month ago, I was working in Mississippi. I worked with about 70 principals whose buildings were 100% free and reduced lunch. Oh, wow. Every child in that building lived in poverty. Well, that's not something I had experienced in my own community where I taught. And so I think there's on one hand, yes, we want to be working side by side. Yes, teachers need to learn from teachers. I wouldn't want somebody to misunderstand that. Yes, somebody needs to bring the credit credibility. Again, I wouldn't want somebody to misunderstand what I said. But I think working nationally now, I'm a lot of my blinders from only working in one community in one district for all those years, a lot of my blinders have been removed because I see amazing things happening in some of the poorest areas of our country that I just wasn't exposed to. I see incredible work across states, even in state departments across the board that I just wasn't exposed to. I'm aware of many tools, resources, organizations, nonprofits profits place to support schools that I just wasn't exposed to. And so the breadth of understanding, I've grown a lot as an educator in the last number of years, um, but it also gives me more opportunity to break down silos, to connect districts. Just today, I was helping an organization highlight 10 different districts that are diverse, with diverse leaders, with unique needs around things like equity and being able to support them. That's not the knowledge that I would have had when I was at a district level. And not that there's anything wrong with that. No. It's just a different lens and a different perspective. And so I think it's something that I'm able to bring at this point that I wasn't able to having been when, if I, when I was just in that classroom or whatnot. Um, but taking a look, going back to, you know, um, it's knowing your audience, it's knowing their needs, it's not bringing a one size fits all approach. It's being empathetic with where they're at, not forgetting where you came from and doing whatever you can to build on the capacity that they have there. Well, I mean, that, wow, that's absolutely incredible. I completely agree. Like I said, when I, when I switched to education, I was in healthcare for several years in food services and, and so forth, is I switched over and I worked in a pretty normal, diverse kind of area in this one town. We weren't really poverty, but we, were, you know, we had minorities and everything. Then I went to a private school. It's a completely different world.
Um, and there certainly is issues with that, especially at a national scale or people that come in to work with districts. I wholeheartedly agree. And so for me, it's, it's about relationships. It's about knowing where they're at. It's about respecting them as professionals. And it's about building on their capacity and not having that deficit mindset, but building on the great things and then providing ways to support them and being super practical in the process. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice too. So going away from that, let's kind of shift gears and let's talk about your last two books here, Looting Transform and Personal and Authentic. And by the way, I loved uh, P&A as I like to call it too for a brief, because I couldn't put that book down, Tom. So there, I'll, I'll prop you up. I could not put that down. I read uh, Learning Transform during a workshop uh, not too long ago. I really liked it. And all of a sudden I saw this book coming out. I said, okay, I got to get get this. So congratulations on those both. But what went into them? They're kind of uh, similar, but they're not really similar. How did you differentiate both of those? Yeah, they're, and they're, it's, it's really starting with actually something that I just said, and who's the intended audience? You know, um, working with so many districts and district teams, many times they'll say, you know, hey, should I buy Learning Transform for all my teachers? And, you know, part of it is I would really want to talk through because it's really written at a systems change. Um, I don't want to say philosophical, but like a, uh, a district leadership type end. And so it was really written with superintendents, assistant superintendents, um, maybe principals in mind, those that can really implement those change. It's not your classroom strategies, classroom tools, those kinds of things in that regard. Um, Eric Scheninger and I wrote, uh, co-wrote that and taking a look at those pieces, it's really that systems change. Michael Fullen called it like a blueprint for change for a district. And so when you take a look at like an example like that, the purpose was pretty high level on that and it's pretty much administrator um, oriented in that regard. And not that teachers couldn't read it by any means. It's certainly not what I mean by that. It was just more systems change than it was right. running a classroom, you know? And so, but the flip side, personal and authentic is, is written completely differently in the sense of it's a lot of narrative. It's a lot of story. I leverage a lot of um, stories from my own world. I reflect a lot of my own failures and things where my mindset was off or things where I made the wrong call as a principal. But at the end of the day, how do we make learning personal and authentic for our, our students? And that can involve technology. It can involve zero technology. And I will also say teachers have been doing things that are personal and authentic since the one room schoolhouse. Right. So it's not like here's some new way of doing it. It's to help refocus. How do we see kids as far more than data points and test scores? How do we see the stories that they have within? How do we amplify their strengths and be you know focused on the strengths and the interests and the passions as opposed to deficit mindset? And what does it look like And trying to be super practical? And so one of the things I was really proud about in Personal and Authentic, and I do appreciate the positive tones there, is being able to amplify the voices of so many educators. Um, there's over 50 amp educators whose voices are in personal and authentic from sections that are co-written yes. um, to tips and tricks from teachers. I shouldn't say tips. They call it make it stick. They were, they were, <laughs> make it stick. Where I would send, yeah, and they were make it stick, where I would send it to a teacher and say, you know, when I wrote this area, you're somebody as a teacher that I was thinking about what like in, in your work so like what would you do tomorrow in your classroom to make this applicable and they would send back a two or three sentence idea so it's meant to be try this tomorrow try that tomorrow but I'll also say I co-authored a variety of sections because I didn't feel like my voice should be the one that was writing it let me give you two examples so in, in personal and authentic and doing a lot of research on how do we make things personal for kids how do we create experiences that are authentic in nature one of the areas that I wrote about was this idea of cultural relevance or cultural response right when we look at it I fully recognize and here's like that mindset piece I'm a white male that grew up in middle-class America 
I do not represent even a majority of the kids in our country. And right. so taking a look at that and I'm taking a look at um, my own privilege, my own, my own background, you know, I didn't grow up in a home where I was worried about my next meal, yet many kids come to our schools worried about that next meal. And so I reached out to a really good friend of mine, Dr. Rosa Perez Isaiah, an incredible leader in California. She's had vastly different life experiences than I had. And so I know um, being a Latina woman and taking a look at being a, a leader in the field and understanding it, but also having having a very different history in terms of coming into the country and coming as a non-English speaker. And, you know, that wasn't my world. And so I asked Rosa to really co-write. She actually wrote the majority of that section. I kind of kicked it off, introduced it and said, hey, I'm a white male. I shouldn't be writing this section. So I'm going to turn it over to Rosa. And so part of it is leveraging voices of other people with different world experiences than me um, and trying to practice what I preach about being personal and authentic. The other one um, was a section I wrote about in equity. And I talk about equity and opportunity and I talk about equity and access. And that's something I work with on the national level with the FCC around the homework gap and those kinds of things. But again, I will tell you, getting somebody's life experience that was very different than mine. So I reached out to one of my best friends, a guy named Ken Shelton. Uh, Ken also works in the West Coast. Ken has dealt with things as a black male in life that Tom Murray never has. And so right. we talk about Ken, ta you know, Ken taught in inner city LAUSD. And so that's a different experience than Tom Murray did. And so again, asking Ken for his impact um, and feedback, asking Ken to push my thinking, asking Ken where... And Rosa too, where's my lens off? Or my, is my wording? And getting feedback from some two people that I respect, that I love, that are amazing close friends, that are brilliant at what they do, you know, leveraging their voices. Last people, I'll give an example. I had somebody ask me recently, why did you ask a non-educator, because they hadn't read it, but why did you ask a non-educator to write your foreword? And so Inky Johnson, who is one of the most literally just got named top 20 motivational people. On yeah, because I had heard the name. And then when he was right. writing for so, it, like, I think I heard of this guy. Yeah, he is. I mean, he's well known. He's not an educator. He's not well known in education. Oh, no, no, he's not. Uh, when you know his story. So Inky really, um, he's somebody that, I mean, just to give the 30 second context, he, he grew up in a two bedroom home in the streets of Atlanta with 14 people in it. Five of his uncles were in and out of jail that he lived with and still are to this day, lived on literally nothing. He would go to school, he'd go to the, the, um, to the, the bus stop in the morning and he would shake his bag out to make sure that the, there were no mice or rats that had made their way in. Wow. Like I never experienced that. But the reason I asked him to write the forward is because when Inky speaks, and I've been had the opportunity to do an, uh, an event with Inky where the two keynotes and that's originally actually where we connected and just formed that bond from the get-go and I've really stayed in touch since like he talks about how an educator saved his life and he tells the story about how his eighth grade math teacher saw him hanging out with some 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 people um, that were, were known drug dealers were known gang members on the streets and although Inky wasn't doing anything wrong he was just in the wrong space at the wrong time and his teacher pulled up and was like Inky you get in this car you know Inky's like what I'm not doing anything wrong get in the car and then he t he picked up Inky Johnson for school every single day to make right. sure that he was there. And so he talks about how he saved his life and years later he walked his Inky's wife down the aisle at his wedding. And so it's it's really the reason I asked the non-educator is because it's the impact of a teacher. And here is somebody with a totally different life experience than I had, who's telling about how a teacher really changed and supported that person at a, when they had literally nothing that teacher did it out of the love in his heart and today just that impact. And so, you know, when I look at the opportunity for Ken or Rosa or for Inky, those 
those are three people that Tom Murray shouldn't be associated with when he looks at a construct, but they're three people that I love and respect because their life experience is different than mine. They push my thinking. I can learn so much from them. And it takes removing our own lenses, removing our own biases, getting out of our own way to challenge ourselves to think different and recognize our own mindset and lens. And so you'll see a lot of that in personal and authentic. And if I'm going to write about being personal and authentic, it can't just be from the lens of the, the white male from middle-class America. And I recognize that. And I, and I think that's extremely important because like me growing up, I was, you know, the son of a divorced couple, you know, who lived with his mother and grandmother. So his father later on, I had no siblings. So I was much older, but at the same time, I've talked to people where it's like, well, at least you had him somewhat in your life. I didn't have a dad at all. Or I had somewhere like I was not a mom and I was Latino or I was, you know, you know, or, you know, Asian and so forth. It's like, you can't come there. Like, you're right. I don't understand anything of that situation. So, and I think that's something we get is we put in that lens too. I know I've, I've been working on my own book here a little bit and I've talked about the broken teacher, but I said, this is from my point of view, because this is my experience. But at the same time is I am not representation of everybody else here. This is my story that I feel needs to be told. And maybe it will inspire you as a result. But at the same time is like, I can't say, and this happens like, no, 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 I, I didn't go through this, but I have somebody who could tell the story much better who did go through it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's, it's understanding, and that goes back to the empathy piece. It's understanding the way in which you see the world is one way. Doesn't mean it's the right way. It doesn't mean it's the wrong way. It's one way and having the empathy because when our kids walk into the classroom, if we have 30 students in there, there's 30 different mindsets that come from different backgrounds. And sometimes it's getting out of our own way, but it's also understanding and just having the humility to recognize we have to be super sensitive. Um, and maybe not sensitive is probably not even the right word. We just have to be very proactive in understanding, you know, to reach our students and the strength of in, that's in diversity, the strength that's in a diversity of thought and backgrounds and cultures. Um, that's number one, what our nation needs, but also what our classrooms needs. And I think it's our moral and ethical obligation. I shouldn't say I think. I know it's our moral and ethical obligation to make sure that happens. And I think this goes into our next question, because one of the things you talked about in Personal Authentic is the hidden stories within. Can you dive a little bit more into that for a bit? Sure. Yeah. So my daughter is really the inspiration for that. My, my, my children are the inspiration for a lot of Personal and Authentic and just really looking at it as daddy and not just the educator <laughs> in that regard. So my daughter was born with really severe food allergies to the point where she's been hospitalized three times for less than one seed of sesame. Oh, wow. uh, the first time I'm talking like we almost lost her. Um, she was 10 months old, you know, and she she was, she was, uh, we were eating hummus. She wasn't being fed hummus. She got just the tiniest bit on her hand and she rubbed her eye. And within about two, a minute and a half to two minutes was completely unrecognizable. Wow. And so I tell the story of just over time, like how, you know, as a dad, I tell the story of just that night, like laying next to her crib, listening for every single breath and just making sure she was breathing. And just that's part of who she is and who, what her story is. And then, you know, I share how a number of um, years later, my wife and one of a a support group that we're in around sesame food allergies and she has other allergies around nuts and things like that um, but it was in an allergy there was this new innovative treatment called OIT it's uh, oral immunization or oral immunotherapy and so basically it's desensitization over time right it's only around for five or six years to the point of so my daughter between second and third grade she missed 35 days of school she was tardy 20 times 
all those 35 days of school, she was two hours from home. We would show in a, in a 15 month period, she drove 10,000 miles. She was, she missed 35 days of school. She spent um, like so many hours in the car, just hundreds and hundreds of hours in a car, you know, but it's part of her story and part of who she is. And so I share the story from the hidden stories within because, you know, on every one of those 35 absences, she would say, my wife or I would take her and she would say, you know, mommy, I really wish I could be in school today. Or daddy, you know, I wish I could be, I really wish I could be in school today. And then all of those tardies she would come back after school and she would get there or during the school day if we could get a 7 a.m appointment and she'd be back around one o'clock and we would drop her off and you know i can understand why i should go back to her classroom after a therapy that morning like math might not be the first thing on her mind then no <laughs> so one of the things that i share is you know if we just analyze the data and listen data can be super helpful at times but if we just analyze data without knowing the story we can make really bad decisions and so if we just looked at it and said here Here's this third grade girl or second to third grade girl that's missed 35 days of school that's been absent 20 times or that's been I'm sorry tardy 20 times and that's all we know what are judgments we might make and I know the judgments we might make. oh yes parents don't care the kid is lazy they don't want to be there and those are the judgments we might not make until we understand the story and so just like every one of our children have a story coming in stories of abuse or stories of racism or stories of courage or stories of just incredible happiness or whatever the case might be it makes us who we are and it really defines the context in which we learn. And the flip side to that as well, as I also recognize every teacher, every support staff member, every principal, every secretary has a story. And sometimes we expect educators to drop everything at the front door the moment they walk in and be this perfect person for kids. But let's face it, that's not feasible. No. And I share just in there, just very vulnerably, I share in, in that section how, you know, like the day after my wife and I lost our first baby and I was in a school that next day and just looking around feeling like if, if they only understood, like if they just knew what I was going through to the days where we lost our second and wondered, is this going to ever work? Can we ever do this? And just feeling like I'm just trying to get through the day. And, you know, I was probably short with people or I probably just wasn't very present or I probably seemed really distracted. And, you know, and it's having empathy for the stories that are within and recognizing the value in every person's story, recognizing for our kids, it helps determine that context in which they learn. But for adults, when we take a look at things like school culture and just loving and caring about people, it's, do we see the hidden stories just inside of ourselves or do we see them in other people as well and so it's just that hidden story my daughter I give her the full credit in the world because she is courageous she is brave she has been far through far more in life through you know dozens and dozens and dozens of treatments um, just two just two weeks ago she had to be she needed multiple epipens uh, for sesame because she eats now she eats 2,000 seeds of sesame every day which is what that therapy enabled she can now free eat it but just two weeks ago she needed to be epipen multiple times because of a tree nut and so you know I see that battle she faces um, we also it's given her a lot of empathy because it, she recognizes that there's children out there that struggle that have far worse struggles than she does in life and it's given her a lot of empathy but it's helping us recognize the stories within and putting a value on those to help us see who we teach and not just what we teach yeah and that even goes back to my wife who's had epilepsy since she was six years old and you know coming to that perspective you know I couldn't do that and sometimes she's had problems having that perspective other people say I don't understand why you say life is so bad I have had it much worse in this situation some people will go you know you're right but sometimes she'll turn around and say wow you have this much much worse than I I at least had this here in my life and I have a support system with a son and a husband a husband and a you know family and stuff and I, I think some people just don't understand their story either and I know she grew up at a time. I mean, she's only a couple years older than me, but we're just people didn't talk about it. I was like, nope, it's, you know, 
out of sight, out of mind, and we're worried about what people are going to think. And it's kind of like, sometimes you need to know what is the story? Why are they being late? Is it really because they don't want to be here? Or is, you know, are they trying to work for their mom so they can keep their lights on for something? I had a student many years ago, and that's what happened to him. And we didn't worry about because we knew his story. So we're like, nope, we, I, if he's here today, that's fantastic. If he's not, we know why he's not yeah. here today. And, I, and I, I give a shout out in the book to my daughter's third, second and third grade teachers. I mean, they were amazing people. Um, but at the same time, they understood when she was coming back that, you know, just handing her the five things she missed that morning and said, here's what you owe, probably wasn't the best strategy for a person that was going through a lot of emotion. Something so, like that. Yeah. And so they just loved her for who she was and they helped her in any way that they could. And I get emotional talking about it because they were the exact kind Kind of teachers that you know saw her for who she was and not the child that didn't want to be there you know and so that's uh the hidden stories within it's part of personal and authentic and it's just something that uh i share my heart on yeah i'm, I'm getting a little emotional on this side you can't see but i'm like i'm feeling i remember reading your book and i remember when you were telling your story about your mentor when when i when i was reading that story i almost had to walk off and cry because i'm like oh my i mean like holy cow i can't believe that happened that was you know, saved. And you want to know it's, it's just about being real. You know, it's being yeah. real, being vulnerable. And I think people grow to respect that. It's personally what I respect when I'm working with people. And so I just try to keep it real and just try to keep it supportive. All right. Very good. I'm glad you do. So moving on over to our next part. So let's talk about, you know, you're known for sharing effective use of ad tech and let's face it. I did a dissertation on professional development and in tech. So I know a little bit about this too, but are districts really spending so much money on technology? What is it that's really worked? Sometimes they say, well, they're doing Chromebooks. We should do Chromebooks. Well, we're a mixture or they're iPads or we got to make career ready. We need to go Microsoft service, but you know, are we spending too much money or are we jumping in without even having a plan of what we're yeah. doing? Yeah. So even in the nature of the question, how we phrased it, it's so, it's so often how we phrase those kinds of things. We initially start talking about stuff. Like we can be amazingly innovative with little to no technology and amazingly traditional with all the technology in the world. So we talk about the effective use of ed tech, just to be really clear, just because something is digital doesn't mean it's any good. Like we right. see on social media all the time, like here's a game changing app. And I like, I'm not the guy that's going to like quote unquote, call people out like, but no, it's not like the game changing piece is the pedagogy, the shift, what kids can do with it, what kids can learn with it, how kids can run with it. Like that's what shifts the process or the game to say in that regard, but we're spending more and more money. So regardless, when you take a look at some of these surveys that are out there, some estimates from a year or two ago said like $17 billion a year in ed tech. And then there's other yeah. studies that follow up and say, yeah, and of that about six to 7 billion is a complete waste of money things that don't get used, subscriptions that don't get used, things that sit in closets, things that, you know, at the end of the day, it's understanding from a research end, what really works and boiling it down to a variety of studies, what really works is using technology to explore, to design, to create those kinds of deeper level skills. It's not the digital drill and kill. Just because it's moved from a paper and a pencil to a Chromebook does not mean it's any better. No, in it fact, does not. Many times we can do even we can spend even more time on things. And I can tell I share story after story in, in the book of things where my mindset was like, look, look how new and look how shiny. But fortunately, having some leaders that pushed back and said, yeah, and how much more time did it take to get the exact same result that you could have done with pencil and paper? So I'm a big fan of ed tech when it's used well. When it's not, it's a colossal waste of money. And we've got to get out of our mindset that because it's a digital tool, it's a better tool. It's just different. And different doesn't always mean better. And so, um, you know, technology can be a great tool for access. It can be a great tool to have the world's information at our fingertips. It can be a great tool for connection and collaboration.
education. But at the end of the day, great teaching is great teaching. Um, and when you talk about things like explore, design, and create from a research end, it really just overlaps great teaching, whether it's Webb's depth of knowledge, Bloom's taxonomy, those higher levels there is really what you see in the overlap. Yeah, and I, I, mean, I, did, I even did this in my dissertation, talk about TPAC model, both from Kohler and Margaret Neese and everything. You know, one, you know, who was a tech and one and said, you know, you got the pedagogy, one who was a math teacher is like, yeah, but you got to fail, you got to adapt. And at the same time, it's like, is it really working? You got the pedagogy part, which is a huge part of this model, but at the same time, is, is it really, or are you just putting, as they say, putting some new bells and whistles on it and handing the exact same sheet to them? It's like, I updated recently a, a web uh, exercise I'm doing with my students on, on Thursday, but at the same time as when people originally saw it, they're like, Mr. Rue, why don't you just print this out and mark it? And I said, you are absolutely right. So now I did it and I showed them. And they said, this is nice because I can do this and I understand what it's asking. I said, exactly. I've cleaned it up and it's right. now applied using technology, but at the same time is it is a lesson, but I've made it much more engaging. The fact is you're going to walk around versus, well, okay. If, if, uh, you know, if the government, uh, blocked all streaming service i think there'd be a result a revolt and not the, an increase in movie theaters i said yes and that's actually the answer <laughs> but if this would have been 10 years ago they said oh then it would have been the other story i said exactly you gotta think of the time piece yeah, for sure. but i think that's true because i you know i've been there too i i people always talk to me in my previous ones when i was tech director or coordinator they said why did you keep your budgets you were always under budget i said i didn't spend money where it didn't need to be spent then i had people that were spending money where it's like where, why are you doing this? Half the teachers don't even use this. It's sitting on the shelf. I had a teacher talk to me like, do you still have that 3D printer? I said, yes. And I use it actually very regularly. And they said, oh, good, because we don't want it sitting on the shelf uh, gathering dust. I said, that's the reason why I had it when they gave it to me was because uh, they didn't want it just sitting there and say, well, there's $700. That's, you know, a paperweight. I'm like, exactly. We're not using it for what it could be used for. And some of the things I have used, people say, I didn't know you could use 3D printing for that. I'm like, why not? You're demonstrating learning, you're understanding, you're making it authentic, and you're applying to something that the students will really use and even entrepreneurship and career readiness. So I said, it's yeah. all right there. So it's like yeah. there. And learning transformed. Uh, yeah. And learning transformed, Derek Scheninger and I called that the return on instruction. In other words, mm. you know, the, the time spent plus like what's the value add that comes out of it and making sure that it's worth the time that we are spending on it. Yeah. And you talk about that with the equity, you know, related issues. Can you share a bit, a little bit more? I know you talked about it earlier, but can we just clarify sure. what is the, yeah, the equity? Way, the way we, um, that I'll often talk about equity, really look at equity is really multiple ways. It's not just about technology. It's not just about devices. One is this idea of equity and opportunity. You know, when you look at, and you really drill down to the opportunities our kids have, which kids have those opportunities, what social economic groups do they come from? What's their race? And there's huge disparity in so many different ways there. Um, and when we take a look at equity and opportunity, it can be the courses that they take, the things that they have access to, the supports they have access to. There's so many different ways, you know, extracurriculars and clubs and those kinds of things. There's so many different ways to define that. And that's one area that Ken Shelton and I dive into in Personal and Authentic. The other way is e equity and access. You know, as we do more mm -hmm. and more things related to digital, you know, one of the, we work with the FCC and one of the, um, there was a, a Pew Research Center a couple of years ago did a, basically they did an analysis and they estimated about 5 million of our nation's families do not have internet access. No, no, you know? they don't. And so when you're, when you're looking at it, it's, you might be a district in a suburban area and say, well, we probably don't have that many kids, but to look at it in that way and be like, okay, so what if you're the one child? What's it mean for you? You know, and so looking at it in that regard, it's helping to close that of DC. It's been coined the homework gap. I despise that because it's really not about homework. It's no, about it's not. Right. But when you look at those numbers disproportionately, 
it's our black and Latina families. And right. so when you look at those numbers, there's huge gaps in that. So number one, it's being conscious about it. But number two, not just gazing at the gaps and saying it's there, what are you going to do about it? And so if we're sending something like Chromebooks home and not following up to see who has internet access, that's negligence in 2020. Mm -hmm. Because now we can be telling kids to do things that don't have the opportunity to do it and then penalizing them when they don't do it. So there we've created a system and then we look at, well, who are those students and disproportionately there are students of color in that regard. And so if we're not super conscious and then create structures to support them and dismantle those systems, we can create these inequities just through traditional structures. And that's something that not only do we have to be careful of, it's something we have to adamantly make Make sure we fix. Yeah, and I absolutely agree. Because one thing I do in my class, I am not a homework teacher. And this was something that was even talked to our incoming freshmen. It's like I give them more than enough time because, like, now we're working on Adobe Photoshop. You don't, I'm, I will guarantee you about three fourths of school of students when they go home do not have Photoshop when they go home. I also have some that say, well, everybody should have office. No, I'll guarantee you half of my kids walking home from high level to low level do not have Microsoft office at home. So henceforth, they have to have time to work on that because we can't just say, oh yeah, they're going to go home. I say, I might have somebody who lives in a trailer park where internet is their phone. This is the only way they're doing it. Yeah, you could download an app, but guess what? You might not be able to have clear signal. So how are you working on your Ed Puzzle? I can't make that assumption that just because I made it digital means, okay, they're going to be able to do it when they go home because they can take everything else home with them. Because why are they working on it in my class when we're in a digital classroom and I'm working on it, but they want to work on paper in my digital classroom where it's kind of like, well, wouldn't you be doing that at home or think, well, I don't have time at home. I got to go to work. So then having the thought that we, they have time to just take homework with them and work on it in their free time doesn't mean they do. I mean, I know students that have to go right to work after work and they're lucky if they're home by 830 and then you don't have any time to even do homework. So you, yeah. you can't make that assumption that, oh, just because I made it paper, they'll have time to work on it. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Tom, this has been an amazing time. And, you know, it, 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 I mean, it's flown right by. This has been amazing. I know it's been great information for our listeners, me, myself. I mean, I, 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 you can't see it, but I have some notes down here. I've been taking like, wow, this is going to be incredible. I've been doing it on the edits and stuff. So is there anything you would like to add um, as we wrap up the uh, episode here today? I would just love to thank educators for what they do every day. They are some of the most selfless, hardworking, de dedicated, empathetic people on the planet. And just not to forget and lose sight, here we are recording in oh, it's almost February, end of January, and this is a tiring time of year. It gets dark, yeah. early, it's cold, and it's it's easy to lose sight of our purpose and our why. And it's to, to you know the the fingerprints of impact. When you take a look at the cover of Personal and Authentic, there are fingerprints that cre that create a heart, and it's very intentional and very purposeful because educators are those people that that leave um, their fingerprints per se on generations to come. And so uh, thank you for the work that you do each and every day. Don't lose sight of the impact that you had. And like I say, over and over in personal and authentic, the work is insanely hard, but the kids we serve are absolutely worth it. And I absolutely agree with that. Even the ones that will some days just test your patience, but in the end, they're worth it. My son, I know, does that with his own teacher. He tests us up, but in the end, I know the work he does with his teach, he does with the teacher is going to be worth it in the long run. So, so I want to thank you again, Tom, for being on the Pixel uh, Classroom podcast today. If and if you want to hear more about the Pixel Classroom podcast, remember we are on Anchor, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Cast, and now on Radio Public, Stitcher, and Castbox. And if you want to, you can copy our SS feed right into your device. If you would like to what you hear, please think of subscribing and please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from it. And Tom, before we go, where can they reach you uh, on uh, social media right now or online? Sure. I'd love to connect with people. My website's thomascmurray.com and on every platform, it's either Thomas C. Murray or Thomas C. Murray EDU. So hope to connect with you.
Yep. And I'll leave it right here in the show notes too. So thank you everybody for joining us today. And Tom, thank you so much for giving us time and everything you do and have done here for the, for the kids, the teachers, and of course, I should say the parents too. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So thank you again.